Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law uh, of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Good morning and a warm welcome to uh, this new series, uh, Game Changing Jesus. Um, lots of cards about it. And um, we're going to be looking at how he changes everything, um, not only our lives, but right across society. We're going to be looking at health, education, science, uh, care. Uh, we're going to be looking at democracy, lots and lots of things about society um, over the coming weeks. But what we want to look at today is what is it about Jesus? What is it about his character that makes him such a game changer? Why does it make him, what is it about him that makes him the most influential person of all time? There are great claims made of all sorts of people. This was uh, uh, apparently left at um, uh, Lenin's tomb, his embalmed remains, uh, Vladimir Lenin in Moscow in 1924. And they, they wrote these words, here lies the greatest leader of all people of all time. He was the Lord of the new humanity. He was the saviour of the world. Pretty, pretty bold statement uh, of Lenin. And yet we look back on that and we think, what empty words. Um, the guy's dead. Um, everything, much of what he stood for, isn't around anymore. Leaders like that are dead and buried. And their kingdoms either aren't around or won't be around um, for long. And yet the person and the influence of Jesus is as strong today as it was when he first stood on that Temple Mount at Jerusalem and began to speak to those that would listen to him. Now this is an article from Time magazine. Um, it would require much exotic calculation, however, to deny that the single most powerful figure, not merely in these two millennia, but in all human history, has been Jesus of Nazareth. A serious argument can be made that no one else's life has proved remotely as powerful and as enduring as that of Jesus. And there's a computer data and analyst who's recently put a book out and he's analysed uh, Wikipedia to see who is the most influential person uh, from, what you, from all the data sets they get from that. Um, he is, you know, quite um, data uh, analysing, but they've looked at you know, influence, significance, uh, what they call mean strength analysis, um, which basically says, how long is your article? So there's about, I don't know, half a million people on, on Wikipedia. How long is your article? How many times has it been read? A number of things like that. And Jesus comes up as number one, way, way uh, up there. 
um, most significant. I think one of my favourite quotes of all time is a, is a guy called Jimmy Reid. Um, he was a, a trade unionist, a Glaswegian guy who came out of the Communist Party. And when he came out of the, the Communist Party, he was asked, do you now believe in God? And he, with a wry smile and a kind of rub of his chin, he said, I don't know about that, he said. But he said, if there is a God, I hope he's like Jesus. If there is a God, I hope he's like Jesus. And uh, this guy captures that when he says this. Even those who can't yet accept the core Christian claim that Jesus was the creator of the universe and was made flesh cannot but help stand in awe or admiration before the brilliant ethical framework, the towering moral example, the enduring spiritual and social effects of the life and leadership of Jesus. And uh, last one for now, H.G. Wells once wrote this. More than 1900 years later, a historian like myself who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of greatness is, what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigour that persisted after him? By this test, he says, Jesus stands first. And so I want to try and unpack what is it, as we read the New Testament, that shows us what is it about his character that makes him so stunningly influential across our whole planet? Someone else has put it like this. He basically said that his influence comes out of who he is. Okay? His impact is the overflow of his identity. His conduct was the outpouring of his character. And if we wish to understand him and follow him, we must begin with his holiness. With his holiness. And the word holy is, is misunderstood by many today. We tend to think of it perhaps in even a negative term, uh, a ne negative word, derogatory use, you know, you holy Joe, you know, you holier than thou kind of um, standing aloof, self-righteous, um, hypocrite type of thing. We don't necessarily see it as a positive word in our culture today. But the biblical concept of holiness carries a way more inspiring meaning um, than any of that. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it like this, he says, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible, irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before a year's end? Holiness, real holiness, is irresistible. It is colourful, it is vibrant. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a reality that we see in the life of Jesus, who vividly presented it in every aspect of his life. And it's that that drew people to him. They wanted to follow him. If there is a God, I hope he's like Jesus. So what does this irresistible holiness look like? Well, firstly, his purity, okay, his absence of sin, and actually his absence of selfishness. And, you know, as Christians, if we've got a Christian background, we might think of that as our first kind of thought of holiness, moral perfection. But it's the utter absence of sin, okay? Even in our motives, you know, this is, this is a living water running cold, clear, and perfectly clean. And when we see it, we want something of it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a thirst-quenching uh, thing, and Jesus' early followers were not naive about human character. They were not naive about human nature. We have Matthew, the tax collector. He was despised 
Okay, and you know, we've looked at Matthew the tax collector before, and you know, we've likened him to someone like a parking warden who's going around your car park while you're all in here putting parking tickets on your cars. That's what he was like. He was a tax collector following Jesus, setting up his booth and taking people's money. Okay, he was despised for a whole number of reasons. He understood ulterior motive. We've got Mary Magdalene. She was harassed by her demons. We've got the other disciples in manual jobs and trades. And they could spot a con a mile off. They could spot a phony a mile off. They could spot the pretense, the superficial, just like that. And yet they spent three years closely with this guy Jesus in every circumstance. And after all of that, Peter writes this, he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. John says, in him was no sin. The writer to Hebrews summed up the consistent experience and teachings of Jesus' early followers when they says this. He said he was tempted in every way just as we are and yet was without sin. Even his enemies reluctantly acknowledged it. Um, this man has done nothing wrong, says Pilate. The Roman centurion at his execution, surely this was a righteous man. Jesus was sinless because he was selfless. Selflessness is what love is and God is love. I mean, can you imagine a leader today and um, going to the media and saying, investigate me to the full. You know, pull out every skeleton out of any closet in my history, put it on the front page of the paper. And yet, in John 8, Jesus is being challenged by the Pharisees, those strict religious leaders aggressively at him, trying to discredit him. And he says precisely that in verse 46. He says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And none could. You know, even Pilate um, washes his hands of him. Because he was truly pure in that most non-judgmental of ways. Okay, true purity, true integrity, true holiness of character. But the second aspect of this is more. So what is the second aspect of this irresistible holiness that he had? Is to do with the fruits that he produced. Because holiness is a lot more than just the absence of sin. It's also the presence of God's glory. It's the presence of God's goodness. And in place of the darkness in our lives, it's not just an emptiness, but in Jesus, it was filled. It was filled with light and it was filled with abundant life. And it made a difference to people. As someone said, you know, the sorrowful flocked to him. They wanted him to minister into their lives. People of all walks and backgrounds. And John tries to capture it in John 1 when he, he talks and writes of, of the Word. The Word was with God and was, was God uh, in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. And we've seen his glory full of grace and truth. There's this bursting out of light and life that he tries to capture there. And Paul says that when the Holy Spirit of God comes in our lives, not only does he push out sin and selfishness, but he replaces it. He replaces it with wonderful things, with good fruit in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And these are all aspects of holiness, irresistible holiness. These are the abounding qualities of Jesus that people were drawn to and that made him a game changer. Because people were hungry, looking for what is life about, and they saw it. They saw the food of life in Jesus. This is what life was meant to be like, and they wanted something of that. 
Again, can you imagine, well, generally, if someone asks you, do you want to be holy, right? If you ask the room of people, do you want to be holy, you'd get a mixture of answers. You'd, a lot of people would not be very sure about that. Do I want to be holy? I'm not sure. Maybe. A few shy hands might go up. But if you were asked people, would you like a greater measure of joy in your life? Would you like a greater measure of love in your life? A greater measure of peace in your life? A greater measure of goodness and kindness in your life? People will flock to that. Okay, people say, yeah, I want some of that. And they saw this quality of character that was so attractive to, to them that they were willing to let down their nets, give, give up their nets and follow him. In fact, he was so full of good fruit, they were, they were happy to sign up for a three-year road trip with him. And maybe they're thinking, just some of what he has might just rub off on me. So I want to be with you. I want to be near you. I want to follow you and see what this is about. And so C.S. Lewis was right that holiness, properly understood, is anything but dull. It is compelling. It is irresistible. Because it's the fullness of God's own nature that we were made to see and experience being made available in all of that. Because it is game-changing. The third aspect that I think we need to understand about this holiness of Jesus is to do with being set apart for a purpose. Set apart for a sacred purpose in our lives or in his life. And uh, in the Old Testament, certain places were set apart or made holy, holy ground. Um, we read about the temple in the Old Testament, which was holy. Um, it was a place specially there for the presence of God, for the service of God, um, and for the worship of God. And likewise, the tabernacle, which was this kind of portable tent that preceded the temple when they were going through the, the, the wilderness and they, they could have that place as a holy place dedicated to God, consecrated to God for worship uh, and all of that, a holy purpose. And then God commands the Israelites to also set apart certain possessions, things solely for the use of worship. So the altar and all the utensils that are used in the sacrifices are uh, anointed, consecrated because they will be most holy set apart places and objects for two reasons one because God is separate to us and it reminds us that we are just human he is God and there's a specialness to that but also that sense of honoring him you know that worship is not just a nod of the head but it is about being dedicated it's about being committed um, and there's a specialness to that as well but then God goes on in this and he says I not only want to set apart a place and some things I want to set apart a people I want to make my people holy he wants to set them apart for his purposes. For the people of Israel, it was to be a light to the nations. For ourselves as Christians, it is to be a light to the world. And so a Jewish baby, as we read in Luke chapter 2, he's taken by Joseph and Mary to Jerusalem to be presented to God, to the Lord. And Simeon comes and announces what his special purpose is, that he is to be a light to his own people, but also a light to to the world, to the whole of the Gentile world, the rest of the world, in all of that. And Jesus clearly has a sense of his purpose in life. He knows he's called to serve God's purposes, that he is set apart, and he has a very highly developed sense of that. When he gets lost, um, just in the little bit after that Luke 2 section, they find him in the temple, age 12, and he says, why didn't you understand I needed to be in my father's house? He had that sense of purpose about him. John 6 Verse 38, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. 
you know, when describing what makes him tick, the, the disciples have gone off for some food. The woman's at the well, he's chatting to her. And he comes back, he says, my food, the thing that makes me tick is doing the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, John chapter 4. Hebrews 3, 2, Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. He knew he had a task in hand. And Jesus was irresistible because he was set apart for the game-changing purposes of God himself. In fact, he was God in the flesh, bringing about that change, which was to come and to seek and to save <coughs> all that was lost. And this cause causes shockwaves across the Roman Empire, as the video showed and alluded to. You know, the, the most powerful empire ever on this planet, that is now in the history books, and yet a third of the planet kind of adhere to following Jesus in some way, on some form. Because he's bringing about God's purposes, but in God's way. And that takes us on to our, our fourth aspect, which is the fourth dimension of holiness that is important here, which is holiness is also, also associated with um, God's awesome power. You know, Jesus doesn't just stay as a baby. He doesn't just stay as a child, meek and mild. But he becomes... Um, a man who ministers. He's not a pushover when you read of him um, during those ministry years. But neither is his power just a, a magic slot machine for our wishes. You know, he's, he cannot be conned, he cannot be manipulated, but he is someone with world-changing power and potency in the seen realm and in the unseen realm, in the visible realms that we understand and the invisible realms that we often don't. And to experience the fullness of his holiness face-to-face would, would overpower us. You know, John in his revelation says that he, he's as though he falls dead on the floor in his revelation. In Mark's gospel, chapter one, we read of just one of the many encounters that he had with the evil powers. And the spiritual forces there, you know, so virulent that we would shudder in our nightmares to, to kind of ex- even see that or think of that. But then look how this dark force responds to Jesus. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Mark 1, 24. I know who you are, they say. You are the Holy One. The Holy One of God. And the demons quake. You know, w- with God's holiness comes God's power and authority. And the disciples saw it in the boat. You know, they quaked when, you know, they were in the storm and all that. And it says, they saw his power unleashed over the forces of nature. Mark 4, 41, they were terrified. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Okay, he, he is Lord. He is, you know, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. He is awesome God, holy God, who has come to meet us in the flesh as this man Jesus. And it's only because of his amazing grace that we can stand in his presence and actually remain alive. You know, it's by his grace he comes and says, I'm coming as a saviour, not as a judge. One day I will return as a judge, but for now I come as a saviour because of his grace, because of his goodness. You know, because of his grace, he actually offers each one of us, whoever we are, a part to play. And he says, I want you to be part of my purposes. Come and play a part with me. And so Jesus, the game changer, invites us to his path. This is his path, pretty well. 
to walk in his steps. You know, he says, be holy because I'm holy. Be holy because I'm holy. Doesn't mean we're perfect. We're still stained with, you know, all the things we get wrong because we know God does not measure us by looking at us. He measures us by looking at Christ. And he sees his righteousness, not our righteousness. But he calls us to walk this path, to walk in his steps with him to begin to live right lives, purity. You know, with him to be full of God, good fruits, to set ourselves apart daily to him, to recognize his power. And so as, as he begins to live his life in us, you know, his irresistible life starts to be seen in us, not because we're great, but because people see what, what he has, what he's like. Because we start with him to root out that impurity. We start to cultivate the fruit of that spirit. We say each day, I set myself apart for your sacred purposes, God. And I remember before whom we stand and whom we serve. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so each one of us, you too, can join him in this game-changing mission. Because we come with humble gratitude, a trembling reverence, and a sense of this sacred purpose. And we invite other people to come and meet this game-changing Jesus. And we can do that through this, this series. As I say, we're going to be looking at all sorts of, of issues that are changed because of Jesus. Things that trace themselves back to what Christianity has brought into this world, what Jesus Christ has brought into this world radically. And a great thing to invite people to. And also... Um, you know, we've got Alpha starting. If people here want to know more about this Jesus, you want to look at the evidence for yourself, or you've got friends who do, come to the Alpha course and we'll unpack all of that as well.